Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I don't know what episode this is. It's a personals episode. So today we have Lucian Stroy from all over the place. I don't know. You've been doing a lot. I've done so many things since I've known you. You're into a few things now. Do the normal thing and introduce yourself. Tell us what you've been up to and we'll have some fun. Yeah. My name is Lucian Stroy. I, um, I'm a blockchain developer, now product manager. I'm currently working at Ava Labs, and I'm also a startup founder. I'm the CTO of a startup called Coral, and it's a music, NFT, social experiment, really, that uh, I'd love to get in further in the episode. But yeah, we have a lot of history, and uh, that history is really important with my formation, my foundation in blockchain. I uh, spent a lot of time growing up in this industry around you guys, had a show on this uh, podcast, about 50 plus episodes uh, called Dose of Ether. And uh, if anyone recognizes my voice, I think I have to go a little closer to the microphone to uh, mm -hmm. say hello and welcome. This is another episode of A Dose of Ether. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, we go way back. Are we? This is a personals episode, right? You said that. Do we get to talk about that night at DevCon? Oh man! <laughs> no, no, we <laughs> no, we can, no, we can, we can for sure. Was, uh, oh, that was <laughs> I don't remember what night. night. Oh, you don't remember because you actually went to bed. But Lucian and I, <laughs> we went out on the Prague, the Prague city. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, this we is Prague. A, oh okay. yeah, we had a night. <laughs> went to a, I went to my first multi-layered club. It was I felt like I was in the movie Blade. I was like just techno and dance music everywhere <laughs> <laughs> man and it was raining a little bit and i had yeah. some like kind of formal dress shoes and the cobblestones <laughs> got wet you, you know, know. Got suede back then. did you have like a it, suede top worse. hat for a while <laughs> i did yeah yeah so when Corey and i went to our first uh business trip it was uh london blockchain week and wow. like crypto was dead at the time, right? So the only people who showed up to the conference were suits. And uh, I bought a top hat and a trench coat. And <laughs> like an alleyway. Like, exactly. Yeah, I still have it. <laughs> oh, good times. Good times. Yeah. I have a picture of uh, Colin in that top hat in a, a penguin outfit. Random side note. Yeah, <laughs> he's dressed as a penguin with a top hat. <laughs> oh, no, no, Colin is. He was the original founder of this podcast, Ashing It Out. And mm -hmm. all one of the early wow, first feels like engineers at Alva Labs. It's been a lot yeah. of years, but it doesn't feel like it's been that many years. But oh, man, it, it went by fast. It yeah. did. Um, so, Coral, tell us yeah. about it, man. I got a lot of musician friends. And I'm not just, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not one of those things. Like I got a musician friend. Like, I actually do my, my brother's a musician. His friends are musicians. We hang out with them all the time. Uh, you know, how does it, it's really, always been a, you were actually gonna, you had started a music club, a jazz club. Very, no, not started. Like we're still doing that. We had to, yeah, well, there you go. Like, we're still doing that. Uh, yeah, I'm actually starting a jazz club called sharp nine, sharp nine jazz literally mm -hmm. looking for property as we speak. Um, and uh, I always tell my brother's friends like, hey, you know, you should look into blockchain technology. And they're always like, 
fuck you try to sell me some doge bro and i'm like no it's not it's not like that it's not it's not like that i feel like um you know you'll get a little bit more of your uh, money back for the time that you spend other than like you know 10 you know 10 two tenths of a penny for every five streams on spotify you might get an actual penny for one stream you know and so so what is what how can you know blockchain technology web3 all the terms we could throw out help them yeah so one of the first things that we um did when we found coral is uh we thought about like okay first of all what's wrong with the current music ecosystem right and what went wrong in our opinion is that there was this promise that if you as a emerging or independent artist give away your music for free online um, you have greater access people find it easier to listen to your work um, you'll be discovered and then you'll make money through live shows and that's where most artist revenue comes from still like up until like a certain echelon of artists where you're like a top 10 or a top 20 streamer it's not an important source of income for most musicians hmm. and um <clears throat> that collapsed in uh, the pandemic so there was no live music uh the main source of income for um emerging artists basically dried up most independent artists dried up and basically people started reconsidering what their relationship is with their existing record deals with um, streaming services with social platforms especially and uh, we spotted this opportunity about a year ago coral's been going on for a little over a year and um, the first thing that we noticed was the nft trend like this time last year nfts were super hot um, this was still the top shots phase of NFTs in which it was relatively immature. And, um, we saw this opportunity that if we can build a decentralized alternative to top shots, that still incorporates easy user onboarding and credit card integration. Um, then we can essentially grab market share and like develop something that's music focused. Um, so we worked on building that out and the problem is that the industry really picked up like incredibly fast right and by the time we launched at nft nyc um music nfts were effectively like the largest category <laughs> of parties <clears throat> and we were just basically like drowning in a, a content sea of sameness right like everyone's trying to launch nfts music nfts at the same time and um my background in like building accessible solutions that scale and something that's approachable and practical. Um, we sat back and we thought about it. It's like, what we want to actually do is we want to build not just infrastructure, but we want to build something that's foundational. So we thought about it and we realized that like, we went to the core of it. It's like, why were we interested in music NFTs? We want to build online communities. Um, that support and sustain musicians um, in a alternative to crowdsourcing because it's more engaging than just a donation. And the goal that we have is I want fans to earn money promoting musicians that they're passionate about, right? And I want musicians to be able to pay fans for doing promotional work. And 
that combination plus the fact that we feel that um, music discovery is innately peer-to-peer and happens through interpersonal and direct like human connections um, in combination basically built out our new strategy. And what we're going to build out is essentially the incentive layer that will go on top of traditional or Web3 social media and that incentivizes the promotion of musicians. Um, yes. One of the flows of money that you didn't mention is how the artist gets paid. You said you, said you want fans to get paid yeah. through proselytizing the music they care about, and you want artists to pay fans to proselytize their music. Correct. The artists get paid because they're the ones making it. Yeah. So in the current implementation of Coral, it's a marketplace. And we wanted to include um, virtual and real life events. The first implementation that we've built uses NFTs as virtual concert tickets and real life concert tickets. So um, we basically produced live streams and uh, we're going to essentially produce exclusive content, behind the scenes, backstage content. Um, and we worked with people like in our first couple projects that were like X boiler rooms so that we were basically producing really high quality uh, streams that we would then sell NFTs that would grant you access to this like backstage pass. And uh, this goes back to like the vision that we had uh, coming out of the pandemic. We wanted to basically create the digital analog of the revenue stream that musicians have through uh, live music. Um, so what we ended up doing is like NFTs that give you uh, live streams, but we also want to do digital and physical merchandise. Um, so we want people to start collecting albums or album covers in limited edition NFTs. Also, we sell merch for these artists as well. Um, sometimes it's behind gated pages. And the idea is that we want to create a way for musicians to um, activate their hardcore fans and not only just like make money off of them, um, having them buy their merch, which they do anyways, it's a major source of income for them, but also create this incentive for people to really use existing social media um, to promote artists that they like. And we feel that if we just have a way for that incentive to work, um, then it can kind of help new and emerging artists break through. So yeah, within our next phase, we're actually expanding that idea even further. And we're basically working with um, people who are influencers, right? Um, it doesn't have to be an influencer. It can be like a small, just a fan. Anyone can go through the process. Um, but essentially we have an influencer marketing campaign that includes like uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, and TikTok advertisements for uh, new and emerging musicians. And it, we basically turn on monetization for those um, promotion contents. And like on TikTok, we create a contest and uh, creators essentially create new and unique um, videos that would then help spread awareness about the musician and the artist. And those actually we track as NFTs. 
and they can essentially get paid by getting someone to turn on to a new musician, right? So we're approaching influencers and we're telling them, it's like, hey, like this unique link, it's similar to what affiliate links uh, do, but we have them in the form of an NFT. If you use this as uh, inside of your content, right, and you activate users to like go to a show and buy a ticket, um, you're actually going to get directly credited for turning that person onto this artist. So if he ever buys merch from that artist, right, you actually make portions of it. And um, our long-term goal is to demonstrate that we can create organic community-driven marketing machines that replace traditional Facebook, Instagram, Twitter ads. And that's the idea. Like we want people to create organic content. We want to incentivize it peer to peer. And then we want to essentially move like advertising budgets um, from big tech platforms to like influencers. And we want to activate people to become influencers, right? Because I actually hate influencer marketing. It feels very parasitic. Um, but the trend that we've noticed is that it goes from like the Kim Kardashian influencers to micro influencers to nano influencers. And now we're doing it peer to peer using crypto Eco payments. Influencers. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, just fans, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm not even an influencer. I'm just a fan and I want to uh, represent. Yeah. I should probably mention D, you're muted. Uh, so you're just, your mouth's moving. Uh, I am an advisor. So that's probably a disclaimer. We should probably get out of the way. I said uh, Pico de Influenzo <laughs> is, is what I said, first of all. And um, that's a lot to take in. I have some questions. Jesse, I wanted Jesse to move before you go forward. I'm moving. <laughs> Jesse I'm, put I'm a moving. still shot of himself up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess so when I think of Coral I think of MTV's real world uh, back to New York season 10 uh, she was an amazing cast member but you thought of Coral and said this is what I'm going to name my company yeah why because yeah. it grows growing organic communities we thought of it as like a living organism that self-replicates um, and I kind of just like the fractal patterns of how that growth is represented. Um, and, uh, we went through a lot of names, <laughs> but we went through a lot of names. Um, and Coral is, um, basically just kind of like an umbrella brand. It didn't necessarily target a specific music audience where, um, not picking genres and music at all. Uh, we essentially just want to be kind of the infrastructure that helps automate the promotion of music. And we thought that, um, actually, this is something that Johnny always said. He was like, that sounds too techy, right? And there's a specific aesthetic and there's a specific um, attitude that um, crypto exudes that turns off people that are like audiophiles or just like mm -hmm. normal fans of music. It's um, there. It's a self-selecting uh, subculture. And sometimes you got to just like take some influence from outside in a different um, context in order to onboard more people. And that's what we want to do. Like we want to onboard music lovers. I want them to use crypto. I don't want them to use a crypto product because it's a crypto product. I want them to feel the benefit of it and just 
essentially think of it as their own. And as a result, like we're going to end up scrubbing the NFT terminology from most of our site. It's um, it's already played out in the music space. Um, so it's no longer an NFT. It's uh, all access pass, right? Because we're using them as access tokens for gated pages um, or a digital concert ticket. Um, and these, this type of stuff, we only really get from like feedback from artists and working with them and launching campaigns. It's just something that we have to kind of like progress through and evolve. Now that makes sense though, right? Like you get in a, like say, you know, when we worked at Booze, right? When we got our, our badges, they were say like, here's your, here's your, you know, access enabled Java card. And they said, here's your badge. And she went indoors. Yeah. You have to have this badge. Like they don't like whenever you get something that allows you to do something, they don't explain all the tech stack behind it. They just yeah. need to, you just need to understand how it works. And I think that's, I think that's a theme that we'll start seeing more of as we expand the audience we're trying to get to. Whereas like instead of like us tryhards proselytizing the tech because we love it and we know what it's capable of, and so we try and explain that in the process of every application. It's like no, here, do this. It's a cool thing you can do now. Don't worry about how it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember like the general purpose person, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, it's become ingrained in the back of my mind. Uh, like when I'm building products, I'm like, I'm no longer a GP fee, <laughs> but I have to unlearn a lot in order to be able to like think. And in the end, I actually can't, like I have to do user testing. <laughs> there is no, there's like, I can't just pretend like I'm a GPP anymore. Right? I'm just like, oh, just download MetaMask, write down your seed phrase. Like, all right, 90% churn, lost. Yeah. Right. If you need a Lord of the GPPs, that's what I coined myself last year. So <laughs> it's just, everything was moving so fast in crypto. I was like, you know what? I'm just general purpose now. That's that's what's going on. That's what's going on. But anyways, you're still like um, a super early adopter. It's uh, yeah, seven years of experience and like having well, used all of these products. It's uh, GPP like is the type of person where on OpenSea they can't tell the difference between the Polygon Purple and the Ethereum Blue, right? Mm. Like that's that's kind of and I think that's an intentional design choice, right? Like don't worry about it. Your money's somewhere, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> right it, it's yeah. like it's floating somewhere in the ether it's okay yeah <laughs> yeah the, exactly well the reason why i think embracing gppism is important for founders and you know developers is because like i did not for a long time for many years and i've ended up becoming tech support for all of crypto for everyone and from my family to my friends to my work associates they're like hey uh so this i went to this website last night and so they asked me for my private key and, and i'm like oh i'll see you tomorrow man you are fucked like 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 your tech support and i was like i'm tired of being tech support i'm just gonna be a gpp too and i'm just gonna not act, yeah. act like a gpp and live that life because i'm tired of these questions there's a lot of questions so there's a bit of there's a bit of magic with doing something that's difficult in a very easy way. And uh crypto loves to make difficult things even more difficult. <laughs> and they're like, it's for your own good, it's for decentralization. And I'm like, okay, but are people gonna use it as intended or are they gonna fuck it up even worse? <laughs> right. And uh the best analogy for this is like username and passwords, incredibly secure. 
if you use them correctly, if you use them correctly, right? Like that's why your root password on your computer, username and password, right? In that context, it's very secure. Once you start using them in like logins for websites and people start interacting with them, it's not secure at all. And it shouldn't be used in any production blockchain system and anywhere in the stack, right? Like it's a complete liability uh, when it's implemented in production in blockchain. Um, so just working around that one problem, there's like a bunch of solutions. There's been hundreds of millions of dollars invested in companies trying to solve it. And um, yeah, I still see people spinning their wheels on the same thing that like we tried to solve. And when I first started in crypto, I'm like, Everyone has to have a hardware wallet. Um, there's like, <laughs> you basically need a hardware wallet and password encryption of the hardware wallet in case someone physically steals your hardware wallet. Um, and then I was trying to build consumer applications using that. And uh, everyone's like, no, there's there's no way. Like this, this is too difficult. Like no one can get it. No one's gonna be able to use your app. So then you like go back and you're like, okay, I'll make a slight compromise, <laughs> right? And then you end up building something and it uses, like before account abstraction uh, became popular, there was a design pattern in which you use like passwordless authentication to unlock a crypto key that still is being saved on a server, right? And it's still being used, um, but yeah, it's like you, it's a back and forth. Like the cypherpunks who started cryptocurrency movement really early on, like they had the skills and the abilities to like have their private keys written in metal plates and like buried under somewhere. And <laughs> there was a, was it loop that like tested what, what level of house fire your uh, steel seed phrases can survive, right? And uh, then you have the normal person and like you test an app and you see a 90% churn whenever you ask them to write down a seed phrase. Jeez. Yeah. Right. I can, yeah. I can relate to those numbers. 90%? And easily. Yeah. Like, And then you give them an option. And I think that um, the coolest thing that came out of this last bull market was being able to see which mass market projects were successful in simplifying it for users without giving up decentralization. And it gave us a really big spectrum of how to do it. Um, and with Coral, we picked, I think, kind of like the best path through all of that using uh, Web3 Auth or Taurus to um, allow for social login. However, it distributes the, the key management to um, multiple nodes so that there isn't a centralized uh, password database with private keys. Um, so I think that's kind of like the current best option. Um, there's other options now, like uh, Coinbase's- um, Coinbase, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Coinbase. Just, just I don't have a Jamaican out. accent. Yeah, oh man, out. I missed that. That was pretty bad, so you should work <laughs> on that. Oh man, I mean, I was about to say something to attest to my Jamaican heritage, but- uh, no one's going to believe it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, they have the, um, multi-party computation systems in which the like private keys broken up into three key shares. They also bought unbound technologies. If you remember mm -hmm. 
Um, and they hold two of the keys, so it's enough for them to be able to recover keys for you, um, but you only hold one of the keys. So it's basically like training wheels for self-custody. Um, but if you like go through some kind of support process, they could recover your keys for you. It's extensive. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. Um, mm. It's interesting, and I'm glad they built something like that. Um, but at the same time, like a single organization still has the ability to recover your private keys, which it works for Coinbase, but almost no other organization uh, would I actually trust custodying assets. I don't even trust Coinbase that much. It's just as much as I need to. Um, but yeah, in terms of like mass user adoption, we haven't figured out the login. <laughs> um, we have the... <laughs> We have the best like shot at it and it works um, and it, it works as it is, uh, but it's definitely not a solved problem. Um, but there's people who've onboarded like literally millions of users into crypto. And, um, and that's why we've seen the rise of like mass market consumer applications. Um, some people that were sufficiently incentivized to do so learned how to use MetaMask. I think the current usage stat is like 20 million. Um, and then like there's some dApps that reached about a million users. Um, most like cap at around a couple hundred thousand, even the most successful ones. And I'm thinking of like so rare, right? Um, their account creation process, super simple. And um then there's other apps that essentially like NBA Top Shots, I think reached two to 400,000 when I was still paying attention to them, like February of last year or something, sometime. Um, yeah, they essentially just had Google authentication. Hmm. There's no, there's no like cryptocurrency hardware wallets. Just like sign in with your Google account and we'll keep your private keys for you and Oof. pay with credit card and no. KYC in order to withdraw your money, right? And then you have SoRare and they did like, oh, we'll generate a private key for you if you only want to sign in with your email. We'll email you your private key so you can do account recovery, but you can connect a MetaMask wallet. You could even export your private keys and take self-custody at any time, right? So like even within the span of NFT gaming projects within the last cycle we saw an improvement of people saying like you can have the same ux but it's still decentralized enough yeah. to be self-custody well, giving people an work. option is the, the main thing mm -hmm. yeah yeah and we focused a lot a lot on that uh on in coral um and then it's just a question of like okay then we have to like we have a way to onboard users it's social login it has it's non-custodial we built in credit card payments. Um, and again, it does so really similarly to uh, a project that um, you had on the podcast before, Corey, uh, for um, subscriptions. I forgot Unlock the name of them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Unlock Protocol. Unlock. Yeah. Julian. I just, I just didn't really like their smart contract. So we just built our own system. Um, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of these ideas, like you see in production, you're like, oh, wow, that's really cool idea um and then you try it out and you see people are like really able to pick it up quickly and uh then you're off and running it's um that's the biggest thing since our last cycle like it is you have so many good examples um but now we just need to figure out the business models that 
generate revenue and actually work and <laughs> are financially sustainable and don't need like multi-billion dollar buy-ins from retail investors in order to like justify the next uh, VC investment rotation or something. It's <laughs> yeah, we, we need actual products that generate revenue and have users and people don't even need to be sold or proselytized crypto. I think we're at the point in which people can just benefit from using yeah. a decentralized system. Um, you guys keep saying prostitutizing? Proselytize. Proselytize. Ah, yes. okay. Yeah. Very different. Very different. Thing. <laughs> ah, maybe not. That's, that's kind of right. close. This is a great one. Idea. One, you're selling a token, and the other, you're selling your body. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Selling's going on. Um, yeah. Proselytize definition means to present part, what the, a present participle of pro. What, come on, give me a break. I hate those self referential to someone to I heard do someone present. It's not like too good. Someone to convert to it's one's like or to recruit someone it's like to join one's party. Institution or cause? Yeah, okay. it's it's a it's a come fancy on. way come of on, saying. Come on, come on my proselytize <laughs> someone. Wait, so I have, I have a question, Lucian. I have been yeah. spending the past few minutes while you were talking trying to Google Coral and get to the website. How do I get to? Yeah, that? it's Coral Fan. Okay, got it. Yeah, is the domain name. We probably haven't um, gotten the traction required to outcompete the aquatic animal. Coral yet. <laughs> also a dating cool, website so. on the, oh, on the last result as well. Yeah, you got a lot of competition hmm. for coral. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think that the way that we're going to be promoting the um, the campaigns, we always wanted coral to kind of be in the background, and we wanted to push musicians forward. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be like the Bandcamp landing page where people see it as central for their like. Um, uh, monetization of their career, basically, right? Um, we wanted to add NFTs to like selling digital copies of your song because there's not a lot of people who still do that. Um, and like vinyl and merch. And we wanted it to be like someone's landing page um, for the monetization aspect of their music. Um, but I think we wanted to go a little further. Because when we realize like what NFT campaigns actually are, you're spending so much money on social media ads, right? And I can't help but like notice that a lot of NFTs were basically big tech lifting the embargo on promoting tokens, right? Mm. Good example of that. So. Big tech um, just decided to blacklist a lot of crypto advertising all at once. Yeah. Um, last cycle, right? Yeah. We could and, have uh, Facebook. And because NFTs first broke out, NBA Top Shots then broke out with analogies to the art market, um, the fact that they were digitally unique was a kind of regulatory arbitrage in which they said, oh, this can't be a security because securities are not like one of 10,000. It's a security of a share, right? It's fungible, exactly. And um, I think the analogy allowed for further advertising um, and NFTs, like when people were investing in NFTs, what would they do? They would see Twitter followers. They would go and see how much chatter was on Discord. 
And then they would see essentially like social proof that there is a community backing this. Um, so a lot of attention was put on hype generation. And when you're trying to bootstrap like a community from zero to one, like you pay off influencers and mm -hmm. then you buy advertising and then you basically do all of this upfront expenditure and then you recover it when you actually do the token launch. Um, and it became kind of predictable. So people started just like churning these out um, until market saturation set in. And yeah, um, mm -hmm. that's how I kind of pessimistically see NFTs in general. But um, I think that there's a way to do it that, and I'm this, I'm borrowing Corey's words directly for this, right? Incentivized communities um, can be represented as NFTs. They don't have to be. In their current form, they are. And uh, it's powerful. It's like a crypto economic primitive of yeah. inclusion. And uh, you get to buy your way into a set. You get to be part of the chicken fam, you know, um, and it's limited. It's digitally scarce and it's fun. Uh, and yeah, you get engaged. Strong. Access control. Yeah. Chicken is sticky. Out. Chicken is sticky. Yeah, I, I keep it pinned in my Google browser, so that'll tell. Oh shit, I've given up too much information. I don't use Google; I use a different browser than that. Y'all know me. You brave. I think that, uh, that that's that, that like we're, we're a little bit past halfway point here. That, that transitions nicely into yeah. like, where are you doing this? I know you work you work for Ava Labs. Yeah, and why choose them as a substrate for for Coral? Yeah, so it's worth going back and um, talking about um, the, the work joke. that I did at Deloitte. Sorry, what was the biology joke? I missed it. Repeat it. <laughs> substrate for coral. A substrate for coral. Oh yeah, God. actually, he added calcium in there somewhere. Never mind. Keep going. <laughs> That's too scientific for me, Doctor yeah. Corey Petty. <laughs> I'm reaching. I'm reaching pretty hard. I'll figure something better later. Keep going. Um. Yeah, so uh, between working with you at Booz and um, going to Avalabs and Coral, I worked at Deloitte for about three years. And um, the project that uh, we built there is now approaching production and it's built using Avalanche. And um, the part it's going to make even further use of Avalanche in the immediate future, but that part is not yet public. So I won't kind of spoil it, but you'll kind of get the hint. Um, the idea was that it's a non-financial application that does um, auditing of federal expenditure that is done at the local and state level. So we basically tracked disaster recovery payments made by localities like Florida, that got hit by a hurricane or Texas, anywhere. And uh, FEMA essentially comes in and they're obligated by law to help communities get back on their feet. Um, so you're spending federal money locally, but there's a catch. You have to prove that the expenditure and the process that you went through in approving those expenses were done legally. So we encoded the business processes into smart contracts and then we followed the entire document chain from like pre preparation and like buying sandbags and like paying people to fill them up, to put them in front of like the Capitol Hall steps, um, all the way to like 
calling in contractors to rebuild the school. And like basically all of these had to follow pretty standard rules that were set at the federal level, but it has to be executed at the local level. And uh, we basically built out a system that can do this effectively and um, securely on a public blockchain. Uh, but the problem is, is that it didn't need a cryptocurrency. In fact, it couldn't use a cryptocurrency as its native gas token because the federal government can never hold appreciating assets on its balance sheet ever, right? Like it can't own stock. It can't make profit, right? Um, and if it holds a bunch of ETH in order to pay gas costs, it can't do that. Um, so either you essentially like pay a contractor that might handle it for you and you have to take on the risk of like the uh, gas prices on ETH fluctuating wildly, or you have a system that lets you basically build your own blockchain and keep certain components of it public and other components of it private. And uh, that's how Avalanche subnets kind of like really emerged as such a powerful crypto economic primitive, right? You have so much flexibility. And uh, again, Corey's like explanation for what a subnet is, is like still my favorite. It's a bunch of avalanche validators that agree on anything, right? And as a result, you can most often, they decide to build their own blockchain. And very often it's an EVM compatible blockchain, but you can decide for the gas token to be effectively valueless or non-transferable or like all of these other slight little criteria that could have made or break a broken uh, a use case like the one we built at Deloitte. But you have the flexibility to do all of that because you don't need consensus of a full public network. You can instead just get a subset of the validators that agree to um, play by certain rules. And um, the end result is like, it's probably going to be the first government blockchain application, like the first US federal government public blockchain application. And mm. uh, yeah. How do you get around the, the government running validators and actually owning the avalanche, like the 2000 avalanche to run those validators to validate that subnet? They don't. They don't. Yeah, they don't have to. They can contract separate. out. So yeah. the way Deloitte did it, yeah. um, is a completely separate network. They're not, they are basically, as far as I understand, licensing the technology to build a secondary network that doesn't have that 2000 avalanche requirement. Oh, so that's okay. more of like a ostensibly proof of authority network because you. the federal government is running these validators. They don't need to trust anyone else, but they can then publicly broadcast and have that kind of access chain. And there might be ways in which they can incorporate into the avalanche network later on down the line if those types of things are relaxed in terms of uh, what it means to be a subnet. Yeah, the thing that I was hesitant to say early on, because it isn't fully public, um, it's going to be public because it will be on the Explorer imminently, but um, hopefully it's public by the time this goes out. <laughs> it shouldn't be a out by Sunday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's actually not going to be up by Sunday. Okay. Uh, you'll see. There'll be, well, let's put it this way. There will be an explorer. <laughs> um, it's going to move to a permission subnet. So um, it's going to like move the entire chain to a permission subnet. 
Um, they're going to have a public explorer. Um, it's not going to be like, it, there's no data that's being leaked through um, following transactions on chain. Um, but essentially there's going to be a public attestation to all the transactions that happened. And there's going to be effectively a checkpointing uh, for specific points in time so that you have um, irreversible or tamper-proof transactions up until like a certain point in time. And uh, then you have full traceability and independent auditability of every transaction that was made and approved. Um, well, it's like automation of that auditability. auditability. Exactly. And it's Audit. like pre, it, we wanted to say it's pre-auditing, but like that term is a little too loaded. Um, the idea is that we can follow every actor's actions on an individual basis, what they approved, when they approved it, and eventually like speed up the process of repayment um, drastically, like to the matter of weeks for something that takes five plus years in a usual case. Damn, that's awesome. Yeah, you're saving lives for real. I hope so. Uh, yeah, I mean, like even to be more extreme with what I hope comes out of that work is I hope it's an example of transparently spending federal money at the local level. Um, that's effectively what's happening because the money is guaranteed by federal law, but it has to be spent locally. I think a lot of use cases can yes. benefit from this, right? Like Department of Education, you have underfunded local schools because it's all based on local property tax and the federal spending in the Department of Education is poorly managed. <laughs> Did you? Uh, is that like yeah. a patent? Did you patent that? I'll give you $1 million for 7%. Equity. <laughs> no, okay. It's not Shark Tank. It's not. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I, it's something that I hope happens in the world. Like, it's one of those things. If I did have a patent on it, I would give it away for free if it meant, like, that's how the world works. Uh, I would love a world where all federal money is spent at the local mm. level. Um, but, yeah, it's just not how power works. So back to the original question. Yes. Avalanche. Why did Coral choose Avalanche? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so after I started Coral, um, and basically I wanted to build something off of Avalanche. Um, and I was really, really excited about the prospects of subnets. And it's because of the flexibility of having your own native token, having your own network, uh, being able to roll your own virtual machine if you need it. But most importantly, I think um, building applications that break the link between uh, finance and what you track on chain. So I mentioned that we want to build a, um, a platform that de-incentivizes ad spend on traditional social media, right? How much do you think like a music industry cost per click is like an Instagram ad on a like uh, for a musician or a concert? How much do you think the artist DPM, paid for you to see it? It's probably, well, I don't know, probably I'd say relatively exorbitant. Cost per click? 42 cents. 42 cents yeah, per pretty click. Pretty high. Yeah. And that's per click and that's considered a positive one. But imagine if you wanted to like measure impressions 
um, you're essentially pushing like subsent cost. And we wanted to build something that would be cost competitive with traditional advertising. We wanted something that could effectively scale the marginal cost per transaction to zero. And this is something that I'm fairly like, I'm one of the only people that thinks about it this way. Um, I think that when you build a subnet, you have higher fixed costs because you have to pay validators, but you have lower marginal costs because you have the full network bandwidth to yourself. So you're making a trade-off. You're essentially saying like, I'll give out more of my tokens than I would if I launched entirely on an L1. Um, but the consequence of it is that you have full control over every transaction that goes on the network and you can price those down to effectively zero. And uh, that's what we hope to do. We effectively hope to uh, make the transaction costs in a non-monetary token um, so that you can essentially like run advertising campaigns and not worry about gas costs. Um, there's been previous work in this direction and the most common uh, like things to come out of this are relayer networks and gas station networks. And um, basically there's a central server or several individuals acting as servers that are decentralized and they pay for other people's gas costs. Um, but if you actually get to dictate the network token yourself, why not make the network token valueless and let people, as long as they interact properly with your app, why don't you just airdrop them small amounts so that they can continue minting NFTs and using the application as intended? Um, so this is kind of like our long-term scaling vision. We don't see that transaction costs um, being pushed onto users ever again. Uh, I think it's probably the main impediment because there's if you had went to a normal Web2 website and you couldn't do anything until you've spent money, I think the churn rate would be even higher than 90%, right? Um, and I feel like that is one of the basic things that people are addressing. And there are examples of people addressing this, like the Lens Protocol. They implemented uh, gas station network style relayers to pay for other people's transaction costs just so that people would use this social network and not have to worry about um, always like paying for like microtransactions worth of gas, right? And you guys remember Peepith, right? Yep. Like, why would you pay 30 cents to tweet, right? <laughs> My 200 like, characters are very important. Yes, they need to be written into an immutable blockchain. But like, you are paying for the immutability and the decentralization. But the flip side is that you are reducing the total number of people who are willing to participate because there's a free alternative and you're pricing yourself out. Mm. So you only get like maximalists or like, yeah. The fixed costs that you talked about, are those variable or in, like they, or is it dependent upon how many validators you need? Is that? Yeah. So let's talk about subnets because this is, um, 
my day job and this is what I focus a lot on. And, <laughs> and I've, I've helped most Wait. of the projects that I've launched subnets. It's a personal like, episode. We're 50 minutes in and we've just gotten <laughs> to talking about what you do for a living. What we yeah. do. It's, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the kicker, right? Like I basically get to help projects and I tell them, I'm like, Hey, I'm going to help you get to production with subnets. Let's figure out everything. And most of the time, it's not a technical hurdle because we've automated most of the, like, the deployment and most of the building a subnet isn't hard. It's not hard anymore. Like if you want to really... stick to the canned VMs that are currently available, it's not hard. Yeah, it's like uh, very quick. And the hard part is like, how do I create the token economic incentives to get validators onto my chain? And then how can I be sure that they're there? And then like, how do I set gas prices? And then how do, so a lot of the questions that I have to deal with are economic and the fact that you don't have any infrastructure. You are going to a chain that is bald. Like there's no Uniswap, <laughs> right? There's like, it's bare. You, and you re you realize just how much you rely on um, the composable ecosystem around you. But when you want like bare metal, like fastest throughput, like I want to outcompete social media on price, <laughs> right? Like once you hit that level and most games are already there. So Web3 gaming and subnets is like the perfect use case because they're like pushing the limits. They want a million consecutive users. They want free NFT mints for everyone. They want user-generated content, everything, right? And you hear all of that and you're like, this has to be on a subnet. <laughs> yeah. And um, I help them kind of like work through all of those problems. Um, and then I take the lessons learned and find the pain points and then work with engineers to basically automate and build out um, all of those roadblocks that they encountered so that every progressive subnets becomes easier and easier. Um, so there's a bunch of subnets just like ready, production ready, like their test nets are up, like they have all of the infrastructure, they know everything how to do it themselves. And they're just like, waiting to do a token so drop. There's over like a hundred subnets just ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and I worked with like uh, five of the first and biggest ones. And um, the subnets that are currently on testnet, I don't think all of them are going to launch at once um, just yet. I think it's going to, everyone's a little bit uh, timid because when you launch a subnet and everyone's doing this, you also launch your own native token. And that's also your gas token, but it's also your staking token. And most people are kind of caught up there, which is why for Coral, I want to have a different native token that isn't tied up in the proof of stake system so that I could start the network, get the traction necessary, and then launch the actual proof of stake token. Um, basically the only project trying to do this though. Um, but the, uh, the idea is that you have immediate utility mm -hmm. and um, you're going to have a like a lot of your token locked up in staking right away which is two very attractive things both from regulatory and from token economics standpoint um, but you need the market conditions to be able to launch successfully um, and that kind of last part it's been a, a bit of a waiting game but um, that's the point where we are right now with subnets like we have yeah. proof of stake subnets ready to go. 
the uh, upgrades to building full permissionless proof of stake subnets is out. It's not in its final version because you can't use ERC20 tokens on the C chain just yet. It's um, we have an intermediary step, but that's going to be taken care of as well. So be, I'm going to argue with the permissionless part, but yeah. Uh, so the idea is like this asterisk is my addition to that. Yeah, I mean, I can actually let's talk about how um, a subnet would launch and the tokens involved and like how you would go about it and why like so many people are attracted to this, including Coral. Like, I think this is the, the key to Coral being like a breakout success. Like we need uh, our own token to incentivize musicians um, to onboard onto our platform. We're going to give away most of our tokens to musicians so that they could then pay to their fans. That's our entire like token distribution strategy in a nutshell. So um, like, how would you go about doing it? And you would launch a ERC20 token on the Avalanche C chain, and uh, you would get it circulating. Um, and then you would build a proof of authority based chain on Avalanche mainnet so that there is a working functioning consensus being managed already. And the difference between proof of authority and proof of stake is that the tokens allocated to validators in the proof of authority system is manually set. So when you move to proof of stake, you no longer have a key that can dictate what the weight is, right? Instead, you have to put up or shut up. Like either you put up those tokens and then you have that weight within the proof of stake network, um, or like there's no alternative, <laughs> right? Like once you flip the key from proof of authority to proof of stake, then you have to put up the tokens. Um, and that's essentially how you do it. You launch a token, build a proof of authority uh, network, you turn off the proof of authority network, and you can manually delist the authority validators and their weight, and then let the proof of stake economic system essentially say who is the validator, how much weight they have, how many uh, tokens have they staked. Um, and we're going to see it like imminently. Um, That's subject to the pool of validators of the primary network. That's where my qualm comes in, is that you're selecting from the primary network of who can participate in proof of stake. So like, yeah. so that pool of people, because like any validator in that pool of the primary network just says, I'm going to validate on this subnet too with this much stake. And that then gives you the weighting of what their vote means within that subnetwork. Mm -hmm. My definition of a permissionless network is people outside of the primary network can also do that. That's going to be yeah. something that's maybe never on the roadmap for Avalanche, but it's uh, not still, it still like breaks the significant. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. It's, it's, it is, but like even just that is a significant improvement on what it means to be a subnet and mm -hmm. um, how validators can further, like how validators in the primary can further choose to like add resources to earn money based on what's going on. Mm. Like, yeah, I guess riddle me this is, is like, um, you know, as you know, Lord of GPPs that happens to have the skill sets. I mean, not the skill sets, but like, um, you run you know, an avalanche have, validator, don't you? 
Well, yeah. I personally, Corey is more like doing. I that. I do it in the name he's, of us. He's turning the wrenches. Okay. I'm just the guy that's like, hey, you validate to our node, and they're like, how do I do that? I'm like, sit down, young grasshopper. Let me show you how to push some <laughs> buttons. And I do, I do that part, but yeah. Um, the the thing is with me is like, okay, we're gonna validate your subnet, but then they're always like, yeah, but you gotta have an ass ton of our token to to validate our subnet. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so who's gonna give me that ass ton? Are you gonna give yeah. me that? Are you gonna give that to me, or you want me to go yeah. buy that out of my money? And you want me to validate? So you want me to spend money and spend more money? You want me to spend recursive money? And that's you see what I'm saying? As a GPP, I'm like, yeah, I'm not. Gotta, sold. I'm not sold. You gotta, on that. you gotta spend money to make money, right? Oh, and I mean, there the is question that the too. question then becomes like. Um, in the Cosmos ecosystem, most validators get airdropped their token, right? Um, in the Polkadot ecosystem, you have to stake your dot to a specific project so that you could then earn for validating like a project. I might be butchering that, but like you have to lock up dot token in order to get a parachain slot, and then you can get paid in the uh, parachains token with emissions over time. So like you still need dot tokens. Um, in the avalanche, it's worth like talking about the avalanche economic model, like from a really high level, because most people don't. Um, avalanche has the same, well, it mapped the same kind of reducing emissions curve as Bitcoin. So there's halvings every single second. Like it slowly reduces the emissions of AVEX tokens over time. Currently, I think it's about 8.7, maybe like. 9% to 9%, um, depending on the duration of how long you're staking. That's how much AVEX you make for locking up your tokens for a year, let's say. Next year, it's going to be like eight, and then the year after, seven. Eventually, uh, in about 20 years' time, it's going to be really close to zero. Um, my times are off, by the way. Like You have to look at the charts um, in their economics paper. But the idea is that there is an exponentially decreasing emissions in AVEX tokens long-term. And the idea then becomes like, what are you? do you have the same problem as Bitcoin? Like, you're going to run out of security budget. How are you going to manage a proof-of-stake system without a security budget? The kicker is subnets over 20 years will create the emissions that will replace AVEX emissions. So you would buy and lock up AVEX, and then you would only expect rewards in the subnet token long-term. And that's essentially how the vision is. And that's also how it's a fixed supply token. And I want to draw like a direct parallel to ETH2 and the difference between gas burn, right? ETH2 burns gas, um, not all of it, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, it burns only like a portion of it. Yep. Um, in Avalanche, we burn all the gas because it actually doesn't matter who proposes the blocks. Um, block so production maybe. is anonymous, actually. So you have no, there's actually no way to censor transactions from the meme pool because you don't know which node actually uh, like submitted it, right? So oh, if I one, that one. I, I was I was just gonna say any one of the one thousand four hundred nodes could be the proposer. 
Um, and there's no consequences because even your own node doesn't know it's the proposer. Um, maybe you do if it's out of the meme pool and you're the first one submitting it. Maybe you do. Um, and there are consequences with like following who voted for what. Um, but the way the protocol is designed, it's metastable. It has to fall to like either for or against vote in the end. Um, there is no like individual, let's say, Coinbase's node. Uh, when it submits transactions, it has a specific place in the slot. It is their validator that receives a reward for including a very specific transaction. That analogy does not exist in Avalanche, right? It's moving in that direction. You're getting more and more leadered as you get more and more throughput with things like Snowman Plus Plus and Frosty. But we're already running out of time and we may want to save that to like a more technical debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the end result is that subnets are essentially the way um, that the long-term monetization continues and you don't need gas burn um, in order to create a fixed supply um, the way you do in Ethereum, because the emissions in Ethereum are essentially designed to be perpetual. So you need to have a gas burn above a certain level in order to like prevent the constant inflation of the total supply of Ethereum. It's like civil um, and spam for Avalanche, whereas incentives are going to come from whatever the hell is happening on subnets. Mm -hmm, like eventually exactly. what I see with, with Avalanche is the C chain is less useful and... Mm -hmm burdensome to the being a primary validator and the only thing you really care about is mostly the p chain which is who's validating what on what subnets once um and we're building like a network um a network specific bridge so that bridging between subnets has a higher safety yeah. threshold than like bridging to an external that gives network. you a reason to subnet because it gives you like a way to communicate with other subnets it also creates this incentive for added use for the C chain because it's going to be the DeFi chain. So when you're moving like size, uh, you want the full validator set. And um, as a result, I actually see that there's weird and it's an open design space, but um, and we disagree even internally. Some people think that all DeFi is going to happen on the C chain. Um, some people think that it's going to go to application-specific chains that do nothing except complex calculations for finding market inefficient prices. Maybe there's going to be something like the Osmosis chain in which there's a specific subnet that does nothing except arbitrage, like opportunities on other chains. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's very much open and up in the air, but um, I actually think that there's going to be more demand on the C chain the more subnets there are uh, because new projects like Coral, uh, Coral is currently on the C chain and we have to hit that fixed, like we have to make it worth having such a high fixed cost to launch a subnet. So we're like building size and we have time, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have time to get a ton of transaction throughput until we hit that point in which it makes more sense to have a high fixed cost and a zero variable cost, right? Um, so we have room to grow on the C chain until that happens. But that's kind of how I see it happening for especially games and other projects. Like they're going to sell their base NFTs on the C chain. They're going to try to make as much money as possible. It's where all the liquidity is in the network. And then once the game has traction and you want to lock up your game for in-game activities or trading or like 
essentially the really expensive gas cal uh, calculations, then you'll do that on the subnet. Um, so you're essentially like able to get some of the composability of like a, a massive monolithic blockchain on the C chain, but you have the application specific um, subnets that essentially let you just really scale once you hit the like CryptoKitties moment, right? There's a moment in which you just outgrow the chain because your transactions alone basically drive up the entire price for everyone else on the chain. Mm. Um, and it happened to Kurbata on Avalanche. Um, and it's going to happen to a lot of projects, really. Like if, if you share resources, um, eventually you are either going to experience a price increase from someone else's like success or you're yourself going to be so successful that you're going to end up like supporting the entire economics of the rest of the chain with your project alone. Well, I'm getting messages in the background from our producer to shut the hell up. So I'm going to go ahead yeah. and start to wrap it up. You got, you, you got to have a smoother segue than that, Corey. That we're supposed, we're we supposed to stop now. Bye, Lucian. No. Goodbye. <laughs> hey, it was, it's always awesome hanging out with you, Lucian. Um, you know, I yeah, hope, thanks for letting me ramble again. I, I, I hope just, uh, <laughs> just like real Coral, your project is a, a being a home to many, many beautiful, beautiful creatures out there. And by creatures, I mean musicians. There you go. Well done.